So this afternoon we'll be looking at the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and we'll be looking at it as summarized in the Heidelberg Catechism. We find it in Lord's Day 20, which you can find on page 534 of your Book of Praise. What do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? First, he is together with the Father and the Son, true and eternal God. Second, he is also given to me to make me by true faith share in Christ and all his benefits, to comfort me and to remain with me forever. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, a few weeks ago, when we were looking at the topic of Christ's ascension, we looked at how his ascension allowed us to share in his Holy Spirit. Later, when we discussed his session, his sitting at the right hand of God, we saw the benefits that we received from it. And one of the benefits is that by his Holy Spirit, he pours out heavenly gifts upon us, his members. Now, it's at this point that the question arises for many people. By his Holy Spirit that he pours out heavenly gifts. Okay, who is the Holy Spirit? For many people, the Holy Spirit is just an impersonal force. He is a power that is out there in the universe. On the Jehovah's Witness website, you will find this quote. The Holy Spirit is God's power in action, his active force. God sends out his spirit by projecting his energy to any place to accomplish his will. Because of this, they refer to the Holy Spirit as it. It is more of a power than anything else. Others see the Holy Spirit as an extension of Jesus Christ. He is confused with Christ's divine nature. After all, isn't he occasionally referred to as the Spirit of Christ? Beloved congregation, today we will examine the person and work of the Holy Spirit as we find in Scripture and summarized in the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 20. And we'll look at it under the following theme and points. First, we'll look at it under the overall theme, God the Holy Spirit. And we'll see, first of all, his equality in divinity, and second, his active presence. The first thing to ask when examining the person and work of the Holy Spirit is the question, who is the Spirit? We confess with the church that the Spirit is together with the Father and the Son, true and eternal God. Now, this is easy to confess when we've been raised on it. When many of us have been studying this, uh, many of you children would probably be able to quote this word for word from the Heidelberg Catechism. But what about when we face people who ask questions about this? Are we able to give them an answer? Are we able to clearly explain to them what we mean here? Is the Holy Spirit truly God? While there is much support that can be given to, with regards to the divinity of the Holy Spirit, there are four texts in particular that I want to look at, you, look at with you this afternoon. Genesis 1, Matthew 28, Acts 5, and 1 Corinthians 3. In Genesis 1, 
Genesis 1. You'll find that right at the beginning of your Bible. It's the very first reference to the Holy Spirit that we find in Scripture. We hear about the awesome, creative force of God, vast in its extent and unparalleled in its grandeur. But before we hear about the length, the width, the height, the depth of God's creative power, we get a very interesting description in verses 1 to 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Like an eagle hovering over its brood, the Spirit is described as hovering over the face of the waters. We get a concrete and vivid picture of how the Holy Spirit was involved with the creation of the world. The image given here is clear. God is sovereignly watching over the world, preparing the way for his word, his spoken word by which he creates the world. Now, God describes his word elsewhere as well as being involved in creation. And we can find that in John 1. John 1 verse 1, he is described as being the word was with God and the word was God. He is the son through whom all things were made. With Genesis 1 here and John 1 together, we find Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working in perfect unity, in perfect harmony to bring life to the world to turn the dark depths of nothing, of nothingness into space, time, matter, length, width, height, past, present, and future. By Genesis 1, we see the Spirit's equal involvement with the work of the Trinity. The next passage I'd like to look at with you is Matthew 28. We're going to do a bit of uh, bouncing around here. Matthew 28. Now, at this point in time, Matthew 28 can be found on page 1150 of your pew Bible. At this point in time, you might think, for those of you who are more familiar with this, wouldn't it be easier to go back to Matthew 3 and look at the baptism of Jesus where you see the Holy Spirit descending like a dove? Now, that's where the Spirit comes on Christ in power. And while that does reveal the person of the Spirit, it doesn't immediately connect to his equality. That comes in Matthew 28, verse 19. We read, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Okay, well, how does that help? You might ask. When Christ commands us to, when Christ commands his disciples to baptize his followers, you have to note here that he does not command them to baptize them into the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Names plural. No, he commands them to baptize into the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. This was a deliberate choice on the place of the authors, and it's not something that just got translated into, happened to get translated into English in that way. No, it's something that they wrote down. And it was a deliberate choice on their part. There 
is one name, signifying unity of persons. One name, signifying their equality. There's no grade between them, no hierarchy. The Spirit is just as much God, just as much the name into which a new convert is baptized as the Father and the Son. This passage shows that the Spirit is equal in authority to the Father and the Son. Next, we can look at Acts 5. Acts 5. And you can find that on page 1,257. But a certain man, we read, uh, we read about Ananias and Sapphira in this uh, narrative, and we come to recognize the individuality in the person of the Holy Spirit. We see here, but a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And Ananias hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And Ananias was struck down and he died. Now, about three hours later, his wife walks in and tries the same thing. And Peter says, how is it that the two of you together have agreed to test the Holy Spirit? And then she also is struck down and she dies. Now, note what is happening here. Paul doesn't say, how could you lie to God? He didn't say, you lied to Jesus Christ. No, he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Again, when talking to Sapphira, he says, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? In both cases, he makes it very clear that they have not lied to man, but they've lied to God. Think about this for a moment. If the Holy Spirit was just a power, if he was just an extension of the authority of the Son, how could Paul say this? It's like one of you parents disciplining your child for trying to stick a fork into the power outlet. And saying, what are you doing? You could make electricity angry. And when electricity gets angry, it can kill you. You may chuckle at this, but because you immediately recognize the absurdity of it, electricity is a power. It can be harnessed. It can be used, but it's not alive. You can't grieve electricity. You can't anger electricity. So seeing the Holy Spirit being described in this way, it becomes immediately clear 
that the Holy Spirit is not simply a power. The Spirit is a person of the Trinity. And then in Acts 5, we can see that he's equal in personhood to the Father and the Son. Finally, we come to 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3, that's the last of the passages we'll be looking at with regards to the person of the Holy Spirit. You can find that on page 1,312. 1 Corinthians 3, and I want to here to focus especially on verse 16. And there we read, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? You are set apart as a temple. Now you need to consider this within the context of the ancient world. Every other temple in the ancient world would have had an idol set up in the middle of it. An idol through which the people could serve a god. Now the idol was not necessarily seen as the god as such because they believed their gods would have been at one place or another. Their gods weren't omnipresent. If uh, some of you recollect the uh, story of Elijah on Mount Carmel, he's kind of laughing at them and he says, oh, keep on praying louder. Maybe he can't hear you. Maybe he's on a trip. Maybe he is asleep. So their gods were limited to one place and one time. But the idols that were in these temples were seen as extensions of the power of that particular god. And the god's power, it was assumed, the god's power could be manipulated through that idol. It could be manipulated through that symbol, but the god himself wasn't necessarily there. Israel's temple, on the other hand, had God dwelling in it in a special way. And God made sure to show that to his people. Once you had the tabernacle set up and consecrated in the desert, then you had the cloud coming down and it filled the temple or the tabernacle with smoke. Again, later in, uh, in First Chronicles, when Solomon is busy consecrating the temple, the temple that was built in Jerusalem, you had the cloud coming down and filling the temple with smoke, with thick darkness. This was a representative, this was representative of God dwelling in and among his people in a very special way. It was God who was dwelling among them. Now, there is no earthly temple anymore. There's no structure anymore, no, no building in which God is said to dwell. And God, uh, but God has promised that each of his people shall become a temple. We can read that here. Each of his people shall become a temple. And here we see that it is the Spirit who dwells in each and every believer. He dwells there as God to be worshipped in that temple. Yes, the Holy Spirit is God. And he's equally deserving of worship to the Father and the Son. So in each of these passages, Genesis 1, Matthew 28, Acts 5, and 1 Corinthians 3, we can see a different aspect of the Holy Spirit. He is co-creator. 
He's equally involved in the work of the Trinity. He is equal in authority to the Trin- in the Trinity. He is equal in personhood in the Trinity. And finally, he is equally deserving of worship. He is God. And it's this spirit who dwells in our hearts. Brothers and sisters, it is God who dwells in our hearts. He is the one who stirs up our zeal and our passion. He is the one who brings life to our dead hearts, replacing our hearts of stone with a heart of flesh. He is the one who, as our canons of Dort say beautifully, he makes the will spiritually alive, heals it, corrects it pleasantly, and at the same time powerfully bends it. As a result, where formerly the rebellion and resistance of the flesh fully dominates, now a prompt and sincere obedience of the Spirit begins to prevail, in which the true spiritual renewal and freedom of our will consists. It's in Him that our freedom of will consists. It is this God that we must praise as God, This God who is dwelling in our hearts, renewing us and growing and helping us to grow. We must give thanks to him as God. This is our second point. Now the last few weeks that we've been going through the Heidelberg Catechism, looking at the various points of our faith. We've been looking at the points that deal with the person and the work of the Son of God. One word that arises time and again when dealing with the person and work of Christ is the word benefits. Again and again the question arises, what benefit do you receive from the holy conception and birth of Christ? What further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? How does Christ's ascension benefit us? How does the glory of Christ, our head, benefit us? When we see these questions arise, it is only natural to ask, okay, how do these benefits apply to our lives? How are they applied to our lives? I can understand that they're there, that they're out there, but how are they applied to me? The answer to these questions is that they, are, that they apply to our lives through faith. Faith is the conduit by which we receive God's blessings. It's like the pipe that water runs through to get to your house. Now, the water is what's of value. You don't receive uh, nourishment from the pipe itself but you receive water because of the pressure that is behind the water at its source. So the pressure coming through the pipes. Still, it is necessary to have the pipe in order to receive the water. It's necessary to have this faith in order to receive the benefits and the blessings that we have through Christ. And this faith is worked in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. This is most especially made clear in the words of 1 Corinthians. These things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, 
nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, prior to this passage, Paul was describing how the apostles themselves were able to bring the gospel message to the followers of Christ around the world. They had received wisdom from above. They had received wisdom from God. This wisdom was not something which came naturally to the people, he says, but he says it was a hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages of glory. None of the rulers of this age knew what it was, he said, because if they did, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But this wisdom, this testimony of God, which was hidden from the world and revealed to the apostles, this wisdom came to them through the work of the Holy Spirit. If not for the work of the Holy Spirit, they themselves would not have believed because they would not have understood. But now that the Holy Spirit had come, they were finally able to wrap their mind around that gospel message. And they were able to share it with those around. And what was that gospel message? That's something which Paul writes is central to his ministry, central to what he shares with those around. That gospel message was to know nothing among the people that he was preaching to except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The beauty of the cross was what had captured his heart. That was the wisdom from God that came down. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he was able to see the majesty behind this cruel punishment. The power that was to be released into the world thanks to Christ's death. He was able to take hold of the benefits that had been granted to us by the suffering and death of Christ, as well as the benefits of the outcome of his resurrection and ascension. The benefits which were the extensions of his work on the cross. This single message of salvation is what gripped him, what spurred him to go out to the nations, not with persuasive words of human wisdom, not dominating every discussion with philosophy and logic, twisting arguments and slick words, but with the simple truth of salvation freely offered to sinners. And this reality was not for the apostles alone. No, that same spirit which worked in them, which convicted them, it spurred them to go on to the nations. And that same spirit was the one who worked in those who heard the gospel as well. The spirit worked in their hearts and they believed. It was the same Spirit who worked in each of the hearers that believed, convicted that Christ died once and for all, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. It was the same Spirit who assured the hearts of those Christians that they did receive the benefits of Christ's birth, suffering, and death. They did receive the benefits of, his, uh, of their resurrection in Christ's resurrection. They knew through him that they did receive the benefit. It was sealed to them that Christ is their advocate in heaven and that pledge that he would take them into heaven and that by his power and spirit, he continued in this world to watch over his church. It was not natural wisdom which spurred them on to belief in this. It wasn't natural wisdom that spurred them to faith 
It wasn't persuasive arguments, but it was the work of the Holy Spirit who seized their hearts, gently but firmly convicting them of the truth, removing their hearts of stone and giving them soft hearts, open hearts, receptive hearts. I think that as churches today, we too often lose sight of this reality. We lose sight of the power of the simple gospel message that all are sinners before God, all are under the wrath of God, and that Christ has come to save sinners, and that all who believe in him will be saved. Or if we haven't lost sight of the power of that message, then we have lost sight of the power of the Spirit in applying that message to the hearts of those who listen. Seems like a pretty bold statement, doesn't it? Why do I say this? Well, let me explain. What are the most common arguments that you hear from people against sharing the gospel with those who are around? I don't know what to say. Or else, I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing. What if I scare them off? I don't want to damage my relationship with them and scare them off from the church forever. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you two questions in response to this. Two questions. First, are you firmly convicted of this gospel message? Are you yourself firmly convicted of this gospel message? Do you believe in the power of God to save sinners? Do you believe that God has radically transformed you? That the final destination of your soul has radically changed? Are you a Christian? Are you firmly convicted of the gospel message? Second question, do you believe in the power of God? Do you believe in the transforming work of the Holy Spirit? Or do you think that it's by your own persuasive words that your friends will be convicted? Do you think that somehow eternal salvation hangs off of you and your ability to share the gospel with them? Do you believe in the power of God? Because only one thing stands between them and the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. And that's whether or not they hear the gospel message. Not how they hear the gospel message. Paul himself emphasizes this in two places. First, he talks about the spread of the gospel in general in Romans 10 verse 14. Prior to that, he talked about how there's no distinction between Jew or Greek, but that all who call on the Lord will be saved. His main issue is what we read in this verse. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? They need to hear the gospel to be able to be convicted and to believe. Now this is not because there's some shortcoming on God's part. It's not because he is not able to use something else. But it's because God has chosen to use means. He has chosen to use the gospel message, however it may come. He has, in his good pleasure, chosen to use, free, to use 
weak, fragile vessels to convict the world of sin. To use the Holy Spirit working through the words of the gospel which are spoken, which are read, which are absorbed in some other way. To convict the world of sin and to spread the glorious message of the gospel. And he does that in part through people like you and me. That's an enormous privilege. Now, there's one more thing that I want to look at. The second passage deals with those who don't bring the gospel in the right way because that's another fear that's often brought up. In Philippians 1, we read, Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. But what does it matter? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Now consider that for a moment. How is Paul able to rejoice when the gospel is preached from false motives? How is Paul able to rejoice when people preach the gospel with the intent of hurting him? he is able to rejoice because it is the message of the gospel worked by the Holy Spirit that has the power. The power doesn't come from the individuals themselves. It comes through the gospel message. If the Holy Spirit is able to work in the hearts of those who receive the gospel from people with false motives, doesn't that give us courage as well? That he will be able to work through you, if you share the gospel with a friend or neighbor out of a genuine concern and care for their souls? For those of you who can't get past the first point, struggling to believe in the gospel message, don't despair. If you've not yet been convicted of the glorious message of grace, there is hope. What if you struggle with the gospel? What if you haven't been convicted by sin and driven to seek your salvation in Christ and in Christ alone? I can tell you that you aren't alone. Whether you are new to the faith and this is your first time in the pew or whether you have been calling yourself a Christian for many years, there are others around the world like you. But the gospel, but there is still hope through the gospel. Jesus says to you, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The Holy Spirit is God. He has the power to change you. Pray that the Father would send His Spirit to work in your heart. 
You can be assured by the very fact that you come before the Lord in prayer in this way, that it's a sign that the Spirit is already beginning to work in your heart, that he's already beginning to transform your life and give you a desire to truly seek him, submit to him, and embrace the benefits of Christ. And you can be sure that if you ask with sincerity of heart, he will answer. Just as any father would give good gifts to his children. And for those of you who struggle with the second part, who struggle with sharing the gospel, take heart. It doesn't rely on you. If you share the gospel and might feel like a failure, you can rest in this confidence. It's the Holy Spirit who does the work and not you. You're not relying on your own wisdom, your own power. You're relying on the Holy Spirit. And he is God. He has the power to do as he wills. And it is he who chooses if and when he will work in the hearts of those who hear. So take courage. Rest and trust in the power of God, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Take comfort in his omnipotence, his all-powerfulness. And give him the glory due his name. You can find comfort in the person and work of the Holy Spirit. You can find comfort in the fact that he is God. That he is in control of it all. And that he lives and dwells in you. Amen.